fact that we have this gift of an instrument, um, the one thing that stops people is that they feel that they're not good enough to do it. But um, what a what a bad reason not to do something because you're not the best at it. You are still worthy of joy even though you're not an amazing singer. If singing makes you feel happy, you should open your face and start singing. <laughs> G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, Let's dive in to today's conversation. Imagine 1,500 people, some slightly tipsy, all singing together life in a northern town. Uh, Now imagine that instead of some awful karaoke exercise, they're singing in euphoric three-part harmony. Next month, they'll be back to sing We're All In This Together or Truly Madly Deeply. Pub choir's the brainchild of New Zealand-born Astrid Jorgensen. Trained in the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, Astrid worked as a high school music teacher and choral director. In 2017, she and her friend Megan Bartholomew created Pub Choir, which exploded in popularity. The start of this year saw Astrid taking the idea to the United States. Then, coronavirus, and all of the concerts were cancelled. From the shutdown came Couch Choir, which is, in my view, one of the great connection stories of this chaotic year we're living through. Astrid, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. What a wrap. What an intro. <laughs> so tell me about the role of music in your childhood. Did you have some kind of a, a Von Trapp childhood? Um, well, I've only watched The Sound of Music once and I thought it was far too long, but I'm sure that that's not going to win me any fans to say that <laughs> first. But, um, I, I grew up, I'm the youngest of five um, and... I would say I'm probably the only one of my siblings that continued on with music, but I think that I was the beneficiary of all of their childhood music lessons. Um, like I, I, there was music in the house from the womb with me, um, and I feel like I've always been able to hear music in my head. Um, and I didn't realise that that was something that everyone couldn't do until I got to uni. And um, I don't know. I, I was comparing what I would hear in my music exams with other people. And it just I, I sort of dawned on me that perhaps I could think musically. I found out the word for that is audiation, thinking um, in sounds. And um, that was a really cool, special discovery in my life to realise that that was um, something that I could do. So what does audiation mean? Because all of us sort of, we think of favourite songs and we hum them along. Uh, do, does this mean that you're able to hold different parts in your head at the, at the same time? Well, I mean, for as long as I can remember, I've had a really good recall. So like mm. I can hear a song on the radio and then I could remember what it was like and head over to the piano and just like it almost seems like magic, but just be able to pretty much nail 
nail it on the piano first go or you know with a little bit of fluffing around but then when I got to university I actually started at the University of Queensland and they had this amazing oral musicianship course it was run by a guy called Dr James Cus Kelly who is a really renowned music educator and I, I majored in oral musicianship, which is learning to think and sound, learning to, to hone this skill of audiation. And yeah, it is kind of like holding different parts in your head, thinking through more than one layer of music at a time. I, like I almost, I would, I would liken it to being an interpreter of music. Like, you know, if, um, a language interpreter might hear someone speak in another language and as they are receiving that information, they're transforming it and speaking it out in another language. I feel like I kind of learned to do that a little bit with music, whereas I, I was hearing musical sounds and then kind of putting them into context in my mind. And then I sort of learned how to write them out or, um, sing them back or you know like to to keep that information um and put it in some context in the in the outside world i don't know that was hard to explain i've never done that before <laughs> this is not not at all the direction i i intended the interview to go but it's too fascinating not to explore a bit further <laughs> does music then help you organize other things do you uh, uh do, do you attach musicality to uh, to other things you've got to hold in your mind like when you think about people do you associate them with uh, with music or or book concepts you want to remember do you, I, that it would be cool to say yes, but no. In fact, music is the only thing I can hear in my mind. I actually don't have um, an internal monologue. I was, I've been talking to my friends about this um, a lot lately, but I realised that everyone, well, not everyone, but most people are going around with sort of a dialogue in their head of, of thoughts. And um, like they, I found out my friends can think through conversations they've had or go through their shopping list in their own voice in their mind, like a narration. And it, and outside of music, I think my mind is absolutely silent. <laughs> I'm not thinking through any other conversations. I Music is the only sort of audio emergent property of my mind and everything else is mute. <laughs> wow. So it's a, it, your, your uh, sort of blank, blank but, for, uh, but, but for the musicality there. Yeah, yeah. I feel like my all my resources are put into thinking about musical things and then everything else is, is wordless. I don't have any other sounds attached to my thoughts. So I've just gotten through reading uh, Oliver Sacks' uh, Musicophilia, which you uh, you probably know about uh, yeah. all of the these different patients he has who've uh, who've got who hear music in their heads. Some for some of them it's incredibly disruptive because the music won't stop. And and there's like there's composers who suddenly start to hear schmaltzy music that uh, that that only stops when they're li when they're uh, when they're composing. Um, do you get random snippets popping into your into your head? That's same way I do I do like um I I read I recently read Paul Kelly's autobiography and he I think he had a great line somewhere in there like um if I knew how to write a great song I would be doing it every minute of the day but it's sort of like it's a bit more mystical than that there is nothing to grasp really when it comes to creativity and music does sort of just emerge from my brain like I have woken up from a dream and had a a new song in my mind that I've been able to go and write down for a choir or something like um it is it is a little bit mystical I I can't just sit down and create music out of nothing it is sort of a thought that emerges um and and sometimes I'm lucky enough to to be quick and write it down <laughs> And do you, when you say write it down, does that happen by sort of recording through a through a keyboard, or do you uh, do, does your 
thinking musically translating to be able to, to write a score because I was fascinated when I had Tim Minchin on the podcast and he said he, he couldn't he didn't read or write music and, and I've heard the same of Bruce Springsteen as well yes and uh, I think there are a whole lot of names of really notable musicians who don't read music so obviously it's not um, a prerequisite I don't write it down either because it's just too time consuming I have a phone full of really embarrassing voice memos <laughs> um, whenever I, if I don't immediately capture it or sing it out loud and record that it will be gone forever and I mourn many songs that I will never remember again but felt like a good idea at the time but I wasn't quick enough with my phone or whatever so yes if I if I die I don't want anyone to go through my voice memos though because there's there's like a, probably a thousand in there of just me mumbling really awkward ideas in my car or something so um but yeah I, I, I record them I don't write them down because it would just the idea would be gone before I had the time Voice sounds pretty important to your notion of, of musicality. Were you always uh, a singer or did you uh, experiment with other, uh, other instruments as a kid? No, I had a very um, Asian tiger mum musical upbringing. We all learned piano <laughs> and violin. <laughs> um, and I, I know that I was desperate for singing lessons. Like I, I remember asking my parents on so many occasions. I know I wrote heartfelt letters and attached them to the fridge. I really wanted singing lessons. And I think um, it, perhaps it wasn't immediately apparent to my parents that singing was as intricate an instrument as, say, a violin. Um, you can't see your singing voice. Um, and it's something that everyone has. And I guess it... it uh, learning to play the piano, you know, you learn a series of patterns, you pattern recognition, you look at the notes and then you press the right key. Um, but with singing, it's, it's all a little bit more conceptual. Um, and so I didn't have singing lessons for a really long time until my final year of high school. And then um, I tried to get into university on voice so that I could continue my voice lessons, but I didn't get in, which I think is important to say. I was not accepted into a music course at uni. Um, and and I think after that, I pursued, I saved up my own money and had some singing lessons after that. But um, it definitely was my, one of my later instruments that I tried. So you went to the Queensland Conservatory of Music um, to do violin or, or was that after you'd made the transition oh, no. to singing? I did, I did an undergraduate degree at UQ and I did a Bachelor of Arts. I couldn't get into the music course, but I um, did specialise in my arts degree in oral musicianship. That's what I was talking about before with audiation. Mm. And then I, and I also did choral conducting as my second major. And I wouldn't have done either of those things if I had have got into the singing course that I wanted to get into. Um, if you don't make it into the Bachelor of Music, um, private lessons are not an option for you as a student. And so I had to explore other musical areas and I'm just so grateful for that kick up the bum basically to try other things because those two subject areas really shaped the, the rest of my life. Um, and then after I finished that Bachelor of Arts, I did a, a teaching qualification at UQ and then I did my master's at the conservatorium finally on voice. That was my first really significant year of singing lessons. And what was it like when you finally got to, uh, got to do singing lessons there? I... Oh, mixed reactions, I would say. <laughs> um, of course, it's good to know technical things to make your singing or any musical performance more efficient. 
Um, if you're doing, th- especially with singing, it's a physical activity. So you can actually strain your voice or you can approach it with uh, perhaps a less sustainable technique and you might not have a career for as long if you continue to stand in that way or you to use your voice in a certain way. So it was really good to to finally have some information about how to care for my voice and how to explore different elements of it. But then I would also say part of the discovery I also had in that year was that a lot of singing is really personal. Um, your singing voice is unique to you and you alone and no one can ever sing in the same way and no one will ever reach singing conclusions in the same way that you do. I think that was a discovery that I had. I think I had I spent a lot of my life, because I hadn't had um, maybe four more singing lessons, I had just wanted to um, copy the sorts of singers that I heard and that I liked and I felt very inferior not sounding like them. Um, and uh, I think that year was a year of discovery, learning that um, there are opinions about everyone's singing voice, but um, it is just a matter of opinion. I mean, there are lots of famous singers whose voice I perhaps don't think is very beautiful, but they sell millions of records around the world. And so I kind of just came to the conclusion that singing is a matter of opinion. And I thought that that was very freeing to discover that because then it became about trying to just hone in with what is the best way for me to present my own unique singing voice that only exists for me and what is going to make that feel the best for me. I grew up in the 80s and I remember it was uh, quite a shock when I first heard Australian singing the American rock music that was all around us in an Australian accent. Uh, I was just used to uh, to, to everyone, uh, all of my mates, any time we sang, uh, sang American songs, we'd sing them in American accents. And that idea of making the yes. voice your own, is, uh, is it takes a bit of getting used to. It does. Actually, and I had the same discovery when I was in year 12, when I became interested in singing, and Missy Higgins released her first album. And for me, it was the first time I had heard a female singer um, really just like leaning into their own Australian accent and I thought it was yes. just the coolest thing ever. It was very inspiring. Uh, so uh, tell me about your experience starting your own uh, your own group. You were uh, you headlined uh, Astrid and the Asteroids for a while. How did that feel? <laughs> I feel embarrassed talking about it, but... It's such I, a good I, name. Um, well, <laughs> it was a good name. It's a good alliteration. I... I um, it was actually for a uni assignment while I was doing my master's um, and it was coursework and they said um, to the final piece of assessment for this vocal degree was to actually produce um, uh, a CD of um, to showcase your vocal ability and um, put it in you know a real world context and a lot of people in the course were doing actually Dami M was one of the people in my course so I try not to feel too bad about the different <laughs> parts that our lives have taken but um I a lot of people were recording covers and just like a very like um different sorts of songs to to show off their vocal abilities and I thought that I would try and write some songs um, because I realized that there was all this music sort of bubbling away and I'd never tried to get it out before. And um, it actually was surprisingly easy to extract um, a CD's worth of songs. And I just asked the nicest musical friends that I had because I didn't, I'd never sung in a band or anything before. I wanted the people to be very friendly and um, gentle. And so I got this lovely group of friends together and they helped me record this CD for my assignment and I just thought it would be nice to continue doing that. It felt really amazing to 
um, put down my thoughts into songs and um, and to work with other musicians of a very high level. It was the first sort of real ensemble music making that I'd ever done and it felt amazing to collaborate with other people um, and, and I've sort of been making music ever since. You've also spent some time working in high school. So what did you take away from being a high school music teacher? Um, a lot of grey hair. <laughs> I, <laughs> You're not I that old. <laughs> Yeah, well, you'd think looking at my head. No, I um, <laughs> I knew that it wasn't for me actually, and I honestly, when I say that, I just mean it was too hard. I have just the most respect for high school teachers. My dad's one, and he specifically said to me, "You shouldn't be a teacher. I don't think that you will enjoy it." And of course, then that spurred me on to go and do that one thing he advised me not to do, and I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> um, but I think I'm too haphazard to be a school teacher. Um, I think you have to be a very calm person who can deliver beautiful behavioral soliloquies to children. And I was just—I felt like I was frazzled all of the time. Um, but I did learn how to explain concepts um to uh perhaps unenthusiastic ears i feel like it was the first time i had to learn how to um explain myself and and that that skill i'm very grateful for because i feel like with a crowd of drunk strangers at the pub it's similar to teenagers in year seven or year eight um (laughs) with their attention spans and it's good to be able to break down um information into bite-sized chunks for people (laughs) so let's go to those uh tipsy strangers uh 2017 you and megan bartholomew created uh, pub choir in brisbane's west end uh what uh, where did the idea come from well, I had been working already as a choral director. I had I had retired from school teaching, but I was still working in schools um, with choirs and doing singing lessons. Um, Meg was a really great mate of mine from from the course and um, that I did, and she was running. She had just founded a poetry slam in Brisbane, Brisbane's first. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with slam poetry, but it's very cool. It's very underground sort of scene where, yeah, people, like regular people are embraced into the poetry world, which can sometimes seem a bit stuffy from the outside, similar to choral singing. And Meg had been doing that for a number of years. And so I knew that she was amazing at building communities and running events. And so I, you know, we excitedly discussed this idea of singing with our friends. I had just come back from a year in Townsville where I had been in charge of a whole school choir. It was a compulsory high school choir where every single student in the school had to participate, which was really full on, um, but the most exciting job I'd ever had in my life. And I had come back with all this enthusiasm where in that year I had realized that singing is really for everyone and you don't have to be competitive in music making. You can just sing because it's good for you and it feels good. And I learned that lesson very well in that year. So when I came back to Brisbane and I talked to Meg, I you know, was so full of energy for choir and for sharing singing with a bigger audience than just those who had choral inclinations, you know, or had grown up in with singing lessons or something. You know, I really wanted choir to be for more people and Meg booked the venue. She just made it happen. She called up a little dive bar in Brisbane called the Bearded Lady and she managed to convince them to close off the bar so that we could host a choir rehearsal, which I think is no small feat <laughs> to Absolutely. tell a bar on a, on a weeknight. Yeah, and they did. And it was so cool. 70 people came um, and it already felt like a good idea. Honestly, at the time, it did feel like a good idea, but I didn't realize how 
much people would like it. Um, and, and almost since that first show in Brisbane, it's been sold out ever since across the country. So we've gone from having 70 people on the first night to um, pre-COVID, every month in Brisbane, there was 1,500 people coming to our shows in Brisbane and selling, and like the tickets sell out in five minutes. Like it was just, we were having trouble keeping up with the demand. It's almost, it's a bit of a relief to to have a break from those live shows because it was just, the appetite was absolutely insane. It's a nice problem to have, but yeah, the, the show really exploded over the course of three years, ended up being my full-time job um, and, and allowed me to travel the world and to meet incredible musicians and and novices alike. It's been amazing. What makes a good uh, pub choir song? <laughs> um, I think everything's pretty doable, to be honest. Um, I think people probably get a little too hung up on what the song is because even if you knew it really well, it's going to be presented to you in an unknown way mm. um, because I, I arrange a new song for every single show. So you even if it's your favourite song and you know every lyric, you are not going to perform it in that way. It's probably almost um, a bonus to not know a song because you can approach it with really fresh ears. But some of my favourites and I think some of the crowd's favourites are songs that have a really good jump tempo. <laughs> you can mosh, like you wouldn't think that there'd be mosh pits at choir, but at pub choir, every now and then there is a choir mosh pit if we've got a song with the right tempo. You mentioned Life in a Northern Town in your intro, and that I think that is the single best jumping song we've ever had at pub choir. Like 1500, let's be honest, mostly middle-aged women absolutely moshing hands up in the air at the Tivoli Um while they sing in three-part choral harmony. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so I guess tempo might be one of the main things. But other than that, I reckon most songs are, are prime for the pub. And there's something people who've attended uh, pub choir tell me about the experience of being there that just doesn't get replicated from, uh, from, from watch, watching it afterwards, that notion that you're both uh, audience and performer at the same time. It's kind of unique, right? We, uh, we normally, uh, we're normally one or the other. Yeah, I, I do think it is unique um, where you're transformed from a consumer to the, the one producing the music by the end of the show and people are genuinely skeptical when they come um and i think then genuinely so surprised and so proud of themselves by the end of the show because i really i just i say it all the time but i genuinely believe that everyone can be taught to do something to contribute to musically i mean i um it doesn't mean that everyone that comes to pub choir learns to sing well that's not a promise that we make and most people sing pretty averagely but that's all that is required i think um the, the most exciting thing about pub choir is um, learning to be part of a small part of something bigger than yourself and sharing a goal with strangers and working towards that shared goal and celebrating in the achievement together um, is, is such a cool feeling at pub choir. And um, in those videos, like a lot of people, not a lot, but sometimes people are skeptical and say like, oh, is this real or whatever? But those faces and that performance, it, it truly is a real thing that everybody is capable of doing if you just kind of give them the right encouragement. And, um, and I think pub choir does that. 
It also seems to lower the bar to some extent from other, other choirs. I mean, even the, the ones that aren't entering a Steadfords uh, are often leading up to some performance for friends and family in which they'll, uh, they'll, they'll put their uh, voice on the line. Uh, you don't seem to have that, uh, that, that level. Your, yours, yours is the most low-key choir in Australia in some sense. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, there's no auditions, there's no membership, there's no sheet music or solos or anything. So yes, it is a very low pressure choir, but I don't think we're mo uh, lowering the musical bar. Hmm. I think actually that um, that's one of my favorite things about pub choir is that just ordinary people are shown a high quality musical ex music making experience. Like not, it's not passive. If you come along to pub choir, I will yell at you and tell you what to do. And by the end of the show, you will be performing in harmony. Like it's, um, it's no small feat. Um, but I, I really just time and time again, am, am proved by the audience themselves that everybody is capable. If we, if we had higher expectations of one another um, for doing things averagely, but with lots of enthusiasm, I think we could achieve a lot as a society because pub choir is kind of it shows shows that experiment every single show. Um, yeah, so the bar is musically high, but yes, I try and keep it everything else as low pressure as possible for sure. Enthusiasm is so important. I'm always uh, struck by uh, by the the sort of the frustration I feel at the uh, the, the lassitude of uh, uh, goth-type teenagers who somehow think that they can successfully get through life by being unenthusiastic about everything. You know, I just I love being around enthusiastic people for all of their for for for, for whatever flaws they've got. Same. <laughs> like I think everyone as a teenager goes through the unenthusiastic stage, but. I, I know that from, like, what did I graduate probably 12 or 13 years ago from high school, um, you really do come to learn as an adult that cool people are, are smart people or um, enthusiastic people, as you say. Um, like, that's a phase. At pub choir, it's definitely more cool to be enthusiastic than um, to sit back because you'll miss the whole show. If you don't participate, you don't get to reap any of the rewards of the shared achievement at the end. <laughs> Good metaphor for life. Uh, and you've occasionally had uh, the, singer, the um, songwriter themselves along as uh, part of the event. You had Paul Kelly along to, along to one. What's it like when you've uh, got a star on stage? Um, well, Paul Kelly's a, a peak. That's, let's be real about that. That was pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I, obviously, it's amazing to have access to such incredibly talented musicians, which um, in my previous pub life before pub choir would have I would have never been able to rub shoulders with people like that or Ben Lee or Ella Hooper or Meg Mack um but I will say that I think it's special for them too I don't want to speak on their behalf but the feedback that I got say even from Paul Kelly he sent me a really heartfelt email after the show that we did with him just saying it was it felt like a musical revelation to see all of these regular people working together so well and and actually achieving something musically good like it wasn't just a laugh it was actually at the end the, the product is exciting for the musicians themselves I think probably if you've been playing the same sorts of songs for a few decades it would feel really special to hear them kind of reborn in this very raw way that only exists in that moment because of course then the next show we, we will do a different song so just for the people in that room, that's a special thing that we get to share. And, and I have observed um, from a lot of the artists that we've worked with that it's special for them too, which is, that's pretty cool to be able to facilitate that experience.
Absolutely. And so different from what they must be used to in their concerts of people singing along badly, uh, doing a, do, do, trying to do what they are doing on stage, but uh, by definition doing it less well. Uh, and, and then you, know, you, uh, you, you had this idea of taking uh, Pub Choir International. You'd done a couple of small overseas concerts, but uh, you were on this amazing US tour, and you're actually in the United States about to uh, start some of your, uh, your concerts there when coronavirus hit, right? Yeah, it was a very wild time to be in America in March 2020. Um, mm. uh, a strange a window into um, almost like an alternate timeline um, of seeing how how coronavirus sort of unfolded there in the very early stages. Um, we were, Pub Choir was um, on the way to South by Southwest in Texas, which is, you know, that's a, that's a peak for a lot of... Um, musical artists like that's that's a big deal to get on the lineup there and we were really surprised to be on the lineup as a you know a choir experience but it was you know so exciting um we had a couple of other um shows booked on the way you know los angeles and san francisco and new york um we only managed to get the la show done um and actually it was right on the cusp um of of being possible um uh, America hadn't shut down anything, but the streets were empty and there was something really spooky and, and eerie about the the vibe um, in America. People kind of, it, it was, it, you know, it, it was similar in Australia where there was a moment where it dawned upon us all that this was more serious than a flu season. Yes. Um, and we were in America sort of that week. And so you could walk down the main street in San Francisco and there were no cars and all of the restaurants were closed and we realized we should really go home and we had to forfeit that tour. And, and in the end, it wouldn't have been possible because restrictions then came in that would have stopped us from even doing the shows. But we knew already that it wasn't right for us to be there and that we needed to get home in case the borders closed, which of course they ended up doing. But um, yeah, I... I'm not, I'm not grateful for, for having been in America at that time, but it was a really interesting experience and I am so grateful to, to be able to return to Australia and it did give me an appreciation of how safe it is here and how good our healthcare system is and, um, you know, there's a lot to be thankful for. Yes, well, for my part, uh, Nick Terrell and I were uh, spent the last year writing a book called Reconnected, and in our first draft, uh, we just talked about pub choir. Uh, we looked on your uh, website, saw all these upcoming concerts, which would have been done by the time the the book came out, September twenty twenty. So we wrote about uh, wrote wrote a big passage about how you'd gone international. Uh, and then, of course, we had mm-hmm. to go back into the book draft and uh, and rewrite it, uh, not only to take out the international stuff, but also we then added a, a big passage in Reconnected about your extraordinary initiative, Couch Choir. So tell us about Couch Choir. Oh, I can't wait to read your book, Andrew. But um, <laughs> I, yes, on the way home from America, um, Actually, I was on Twitter. I was on my phone on Twitter um, as we were making our way back to the international airport from San Francisco or LA, I think it was. Um, and I was watching all of our shows um, be cancelled one by one, basically. Um, you know, we had like a big Enmore show booked for the Sydney Comedy Festival and that was cancelled. And then 10 minutes later, the Melbourne Comedy Fest and all of our whole calendar fell apart on the way home. Um, and that was a lot to grapple with because, you know, I think um, it was a good 20,000 tickets that 
were refunded within that 24-hour period when we cancelled our American tour. We had then also lost everything at home. Um, and I guess, I ha- you know, you're not connected to the internet on the flight home. It's a good... We had cheap flights, so it was a good 40 hours <laughs> transit. And it was a lot of time to think about what happens next. Um, and my crew is amazing. And um, we we all felt still enthusiastic about getting something done. Um, and the idea of Couch Choir formulated on that flight home, just thinking, well, everybody's going to be sitting at home in isolation anyway. Um, and we're going to be connecting via the internet. So why don't we meet people where they are, which is online. Um, and then, so it was just about how do we run a choir session without seeing the people in the room? And the way that couch choir has worked out is that rather than interacting in real time with people, I, I, um, video instructions of myself performing their parts And if you want to be part of Couch Choir, you watch my instructions and you copy me as best you can and you video that and send it back. And um, we compile all of those submissions and the end result is surprisingly much like a real choir. It feels like a big choir of people working together because it is really. It's just that they did it in isolation from one another. Um, But I've noticed that actually people are singing a lot more gently in Couch Choir, a pub choir because you've in a room of a thousand people, it's very loud and everyone's at, you know, 130% capacity of their vocal ability. Um, but in couch choir, it's, um, you know, you, you record alone or in your home with your family. And so, yeah, people are, are being more thoughtful and um, singing more carefully. And I think it's a really beautiful result. And I'm so proud of every single one. And um, it's been just really one of the big joys of my life is receiving these submissions from all around the world. Yes, Couch Choir is more poignant than punchy. Um, but I really would challenge anyone listening to the podcast to, uh, who hasn't seen what it's like, uh, go on YouTube, check out Couch Choir doing David Bowie's Heroes or Stevie Wonder's Love's in Need of Love Today uh, and try and watch them all the way through without crying at some point. Uh, we did... Um... We could watch the Killers one because you did it. And actually, Andrew, you were very <laughs> sneaky about it because you didn't announce that you had submitted a video. And actually, my amazing video editor, Paris Owen, who, for all of her skills, I would say she's not particularly interested in politics. She picked up your video as a feature, not because she knew it was you, but she was like, oh, it's a really cool, you know, family, like a dad and some boys. Um, and we like to show men singing. You know, I think that men need a little bit more encouragement sometimes. And um, so you had made the cut before, and then I saw it and I was like, that's Andrew Lee. <laughs> um, so you were picked up for, for talent. I, I hope that you know that. <laughs> well, the, the, the boys really viewed it differently, right? I mean, they loved, they loved that notion that this was uh, not just a fun song, but a performance that they were part of. Uh, and I guess that goes to the, to the heart of what you're doing with pub choir or couch choir. And uh, uh, you use the economic language there that you're both a, uh, uh, a producer and a consumer. And there's something pretty special about that in the, in, in the world. Uh, do you hope to change yeah. attitudes to, uh, to to singing? Do you think we're a little too reticent? Most people are a little too reticent to sing. Absolutely, we are. I um, I mean, I bang about it, on about it all the time. But I, I like everybody is capable of singing because, I, and I mean that literally. And um, uh, like 
you were born with a free instrument and what a waste not to use it. Um, singing is the same mechanism as talking. Everyone feels fine talking to each other. I mean, I'm not advocating for just like only communicating and singing, like that would be very annoying. But um, I, I think that the fact that we have this gift of an instrument, um, it costs you nothing to sing. And the one thing that stops people is that they feel that they're not good enough to do it. But um, what a what a bad reason not to do something because you're not the best at it. Um, doing something averagely is fine. You are still worthy of joy, even though you're not an amazing singer. If singing makes you feel happy, you should open your face and start singing. <laughs> if, if you know, if cooking makes you feel good and your meals don't taste amazing, you still deserve to cook and to eat and to have that experience. Um, I don't know why we've put musical ability into this weird category of the haves and the have-nots. Mm. Um, you know, if you feel like singing, you should go and do that. And it's a physical skill. And maybe the first day you do it, you aren't very good. And if you did it every day and you thought about it, you would probably get better. But you don't even need to worry about Like, if you just want to stay at this level and sing because it makes you feel happy, then you deserve that experience too. And, uh, you know, I, I think that pub choir is slowly convincing people that it's okay to join in because it makes you feel good, not because you want to be the best. In that sense, is pub choir the antidote to Australian Idol? I don't know, maybe. Uh, yeah, I do. Like, I, I watch reality TV. I'm not, like, saying I'm above this experience of, of um, music presented in that way. But I do think it changed our opinion of, uh, yeah, talent being some magical concept that is bestowed upon some of us and most of us not. Like, um, music is something that you can get better at. If you wanted to run a marathon, which I know that you do, um, well, I assume, you can correct me if I'm wrong because I've never run a marathon, but I, I would imagine that it would take quite a lot of, of small sessions of um, building up your endurance and you probably wouldn't be able to run a marathon the first time you ever went for a run. But um, if you worked at it in little steps and, and gradually increased your endurance, you would, you would be able to do that by the end. And the same is true for singing or musical ability. Um, Maybe you're not good the first time you try it, but why would you be? You know, this is the first step and um, you can stay there or you can you can hone your skill and get better at it because every skill is, you know, something that you can get better at. I, I don't know how to, else to say it other than, you know, you can sing. Join me. Relax. It's fine. <laughs> Astrid, uh, what projects do you have on the horizon and uh, and what are your long-term goals for uh, for, for uh, how you might reshape Australia's attitude to singing? Well, um, Couch Choir has taught me that the, the show Pub Choir was always more accessible. It's just that we didn't care enough to make it so, um, which was a very good reality mm. check for me um, and a good thing to reflect on. Um, and so... When you join in Couch Choir, you can leave a submission note if you want to, and a lot of people do. And it's been this really great, almost confessional, where people are telling us sometimes really personal things, but also a lot of stories of accessibility, saying, I live really far away from the city, and I've watched your videos online for a few years, and I knew I could never come to your show, but suddenly I have a front row seat. And that's really cool. I, I feel really honored to have found a way to be more accessible. And so I think 
maybe not as regularly, but we will continue to do couch choir or some, some iteration of that online space because, you know, our, our audience doubled um, from just, you know, mostly Australians to now a worldwide audience. And that's really special. It's a lot more diverse now that we're online. Um, so I think the future holds more couch choir in it. <laughs> I really can't wait to be back on the stage with pub choir. Um, I, I really like reading faces and responding in real time to reactions. And I think that's a skill that I have is shaping a show around what I can see is the experience of the audience. Um, so I really miss live performing and I can't wait to get back to it. I don't know when. Um, so I guess in the meantime, lots of online things. Um, Couch Choir is, is even doing corporate um, work privately for some companies, you know, um, Lots of businesses are working from home now and employees are feeling really isolated from one another and it's hard to keep that sense of team. Um, so we are doing a little bit of that too, um, which is nice to pay the rent. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky person and opportunities sort of seem to present themselves when you are really enthusiastic and um, and kind of work work hard obviously there's a lot of privilege wrapped up in that but um you know I'm I am privileged and so it's it's nice that when I when I keep enthusiastic and I keep creative and um keep sharing my love of singing opportunities sort of seem to walk by which is really nice so I'm just keeping a really open open mind to the future. Astrid what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um I I guess it would just be um, every step along the way offers something to be learned. You know, I felt really bad not getting into the music course that I wanted, but it ended up being the exact thing that I needed. Um, there are lots of, lots of, you know, doing teaching didn't feel like, I felt like I had launched into the totally wrong career after studying it at uni and then it actually ended up arming me with the skills that I need to then go and do this other thing that makes me feel really happy. So I guess I would just tell my teenage self, embrace these, what, what they feel like setbacks, but embrace the opportunity to learn something about yourself and put it in your toolkit so that when the right thing finally comes around, you've, you've got a whole range of things that you have learned to do and it will all make sense. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, I guess I used to believe that, uh, there was only one way to sing, <laughs> um, and that there was an acceptable way to, to present your voice. And then everybody else just fell into the not good category. But now I, I really believe it. I'm not saying it for like a business, you know, point of view or anything. I really believe that everybody can sing and everybody can learn to sing well and I, and I think that every voice is a good one. Even ones that are really out of tune or come out very wonky, I believe that there is beauty in every voice because it is so unique to each person that has made it. And, um, and, I, and I really, really believe it. And I hope that if you're listening and you feel embarrassed about your singing voice, I hope it's, you know, what I'm saying is chipping away at that self-doubt because, yeah, you your voice is the only one like it and um, it's good. It's a good one. Has Couch Choir taught you different things on that dimension? Because you must have this extraordinary opportunity where suddenly you've got 1,000, 2,000 audio tracks you're blending in together and, and you've got the choice of taking the most beautiful or, or taking some of the quirkier ones and, uh, and dialing them up a bit. 
it has been the most significant musical learning experience of my life. Um, actually, the first one um, we did "Close to You" by the Carpenters, and I and we didn't know what the response would be, but I think we had. 1500 people around the world join in and it was really overwhelming we thought maybe we'd have a few hundred because it seemed like a lot to ask of people to sing alone in their homes and then send it to some strangers online you know the internet doesn't always feel like the safest place for everyone and yet all of these people were trusting us with this um very personal information and so I started out my strategy was to pick the best voices and I started my mix, I picked, I don't know, maybe a hundred voices and I mixed them in together to see what it was like. And it sounded ridiculous. It sounded really bizarre and not at all real. Yeah. And I, I, in that moment learned that the reality of humanity is that we are really different. And the more voices I added in, the more real it sounds. And some people sing early and some people sing late and some are too sharp and some are too flat. And when you put it all together, it's very full. It sounds complete. Um, I love the way that Couch Choir sounds. It, it does really replicate what it's like to be in that room of people of all different abilities um, showing us that like the sum of the parts, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, you know, whatever that saying is. Um, <laughs> yeah, that yes. was a really good learning experience for me too. And, I, and, and it, it actually just reinforced to me what I had been saying all along, that every voice is welcome, every voice is important, and it's good enough. Astrid, when are you most happy? I am most happy when I've done, I'm on the other side of something that makes me feel nervous. <laughs> um, I guess that means like do it, taking a small risk. You know, sometimes at a show, it might be, um, I've only had a few hours to pull together an arrangement and I do them from memory. And so I walk onto stage and I have this real nervous feeling that I might not remember how everything goes. And if I get to the other side of that successfully, that's when I'm the most happiest. When I've taken a risk and I've made it through um, and I feel like I level up every time I do something like that. So yeah, I, I embrace the feeling of nervousness these days because I know on the other side of that is probably a really good success. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, I mean, I'm mostly an indoor person. <laughs> so I'm not going on like big hikes or anything, but I, I do like doing um, like yoga or Pilates most days. Um, I'm a very bendy but weak person. <laughs> Um, but I, I find that that's um, like, it's the only exercise, actually, if I'm being honest, it's the only exercise I've ever been able to really commit to in my life, um, mostly because it's indoors and there's a lying down bit at the end. But um, I, I do find that on the days that I do something physical, even even gentle yoga or um, a, a Pilates class, um, I do really feel a lot more grounded and, and able to concentrate a little bit more. Um, like music and stuff makes me happy and friends, but actually just making sure that I'm caring for my body in a small way, um, it does does really, it's important for my mental health. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, my God. My entire life I feel is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> um, oh, how wonderful. I, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I feel like I, I live by the sort of idea that um, everything in maybe moderation. So like I try not to, I try not to put, impose rules on myself. I don't have like these big restrictions. If I feel like doing something, I'll probably do it, um, but I won't do it 
to excess, I hope. I think that that's within me. I reckon I could really go. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like I might have an addictive personality. So I think to keep keep tabs on that, I just, if I have a really strong urge to do something like watch TV while I'm supposed to be working or, you know, go go out and hang out with friends and socialize or eat something that is not nutritionally valuable, um, I'll probably just do it, but I'll try and stop <laughs> after I've satisfied that urge. And I think that kind of helps keep me a little bit even keeled sometimes. And finally, Astrid, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, I mean, my parents are like social justice legends, I, I feel. Um, it's, it was such an important part of our upbringing, um, the idea of justice and social justice and others. Um, and, you know, my mum has worked for Abor Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services for decades. And I think, I hope I say it correctly, but I think she's, you know, the only youth um, defendant for young Indigenous kids in the Brisbane area. Um, and so it's a big job. And um, she takes it in her stride um, so much and... Um, and my dad, um, is very involved with refugee advocacy, um, and, you know, literally just had, um, two refugees, um, from Sudan in his home, like on the weekend, um, because that was the safest person to call, um, in that situation. So my parents are really social justice minded and it's very inspirational. I am nothing you know not a grain of salt on that but um I find them really really inspiring people and um I think me and all of my siblings have really um sort of taken that on board that you know we are people um you know part of a, a bigger whole than ourselves um and you know we are really lucky and privileged in our lives and um it is our responsibility to share a little bit of that wherever we can well, I certainly think in your work in connecting people, you're uh, you're carrying on that that social justice tradition, uh, that that notion that uh, society is better when we're a, a community of we rather than a community of me. So, Astrid Jorgensen, uh, choir director and uh, audiating audiophile, thanks so much for <laughs> taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking at you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed the discussion with Astrid Jorgensen, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Lynn Williams, Carl Vine and Tim Minchin. As you might have heard in the conversation, I have a new book out at the end of September. It's called Reconnected and co-authored with Nick Terrell. You can pre-order it on the Black Ink website now. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.